How was the Australia Day yesterday? Did anybody do anything crazy? I didn't. Stayed pretty subdued. <laughs> what did you do, Tay? You went swimming. That's really awesome. That's really awesome. We had some friends around for a barbecue and things, and we were talking about Australia, just generally, just things in Australia and what favourite Australian movies you have and different things. And we we're talking about Red Dog. Anyone seen Red Dog? It's a great movie, hey? Got that red kelpie over in the Pilbara or wherever it is. And uh, I've always loved dogs. Um, I love, I, I, I don't know, something about them. Like ever since, maybe I, the books I grew up reading as a kid or a boy or whatever, I just love dogs. I love the powerful big dogs in particular, as you probably tell by the dogs that we've had over the years. Um, I love their protective instincts. I love their playfulness. I love their, you know, their pack-minded like sort of ferocity, the way you know, their rippling muscles just built for running long distances and things. I just think they're amazing animals. And I'm actually like police dogs and military dogs get mad respect from me because of their sort of willingness to obey their master at just the, at the smallest like word or the smallest signal or something. They just go, they'll throw away any sorts of sort of self-preservation in complete obedience for, to their handler or to their master. And I, I think that's really great. They've got this, they're animals that we train, but they've got this complete obedience in the face of normal fear. All right? When we train them, yet this whole idea of obedience through fear and stuff is something that we as humans, we don't do that good of a job at. Hey, we train other animals to do it, but we're terrible at this ourselves. So why is that? Why is that? Because I was reading, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a war history kind of nerd, I suppose, and I liked, um, I, I, saw, oh, I grew up watching World War II movies and stuff with my dad and my granddad. Um, and it, I find it amazing that in World War II that the, the Soviet army lost 15,000 men in the Battle of Stalingrad, not from the Nazis, but from their own commanders killing them who were killing men who were fleeing battle. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Like, the Soviets had this idea that they were going to encourage the troops to stay in the fight by killing deserters and killing guys that were too scared to fight, and so they'd flee. So, I suppose the Soviets had this idea that they could force people to obey by instilling like a greater fear in people to, to, um, you know, to enforce this obedience. So, I want us to think about, I just, I want us to think about what, like, what makes... Like, why does our obedience falter in the face of fear? I want us to just let that question hang over us this morning as we go through this, um, as we go through our mega sermon today. Oh, mine won't be a mega sermon. Hopefully, it's less than an hour. Um, but you know what? You know what I mean. Like, let's just let that question hover, and um, we'll. It, it might filter down and fill in some of the gaps as we go through this morning. So, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Ahud. Did I pronounce that right, Jace? Ehud, not Ehud. Um, we, we talked about Ehud, and I told you about like this cyclical pattern that happens in Judges. So people rebel against God, and oppression and terrible things come their way, and then they realize they've stuffed up, and then they say, Lord, save us, help us. And so the Lord raises up a judge to then come in and lead the people out of their oppression or whatever's going on into this, play, this time of peace 
and then people get comfortable in their peace and then they reject God again and round and round it goes. So it's kind of like this circle, but that's not the whole truth because this circle, I want us to add another dimension on it today. So we've got a circle, let's flatten it out and we'll put it on the horizontal and we'll put a dimension going this way and we'll turn it into like a whirlpool, all right? Because from our judge this morning, well, up until now in judges, the judges have only really had good things said about them. That this judge this morning sort of starts that curl on the circle into this other dimension and we start to spiral down, okay? And the other judges follow suit. So that's where we're going. Um, our judge this morning, he's sort of on that little lip as he's going, starts to go down in the end of his life. You probably worked out who we're talking about. Rick's already blown the cover. It's Gideon, okay? And we're going to look at Gideon this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, that dude. Yeah. So let's jump in and we'll just introduce this Gideon guy uh, at the start, hey, and see where his weakness is and how God moves into that weakness to make these great things happen for him. So I'm going to read some of the passage today and I'm going to paraphrase some of it, okay? It's quite like there's a lot of chapters, there's a few chapters devoted to Gideon, so we can't read them all, but um, we're going to, I'm going to read, paraphrase, and we'll open it up a little bit as we sort of go through and then towards the end. So let's jump in. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. All right, so here's that judge's pattern happening again. Verse 2, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the place of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Okay, so here's... Israel living in poverty, eking out an existence in caves and different things. Anytime they had sort of any crops or any livestock to speak of, the Midianites would just come in like a horde, like a swarm, and just take it all, eat it all, devour it all, carry it away, whatever, okay? So this is a pretty low point for Israel. And so the, Lord, so the people then cry out to the Lord as the circle goes. And the Lord sends a prophet. We're not told who or who this prophet is, whether it was a guy or a girl prophet. But, they, but this prophet comes in and starts telling the people, look, remember, God's pulled you out of Egypt. Um, it starts breaking up that hard ground in people's hearts, ready, sort of preparing the way for, this, for a new judge to come on the scene. So let's pick up, let's begin our look at Gideon, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak, sorry, the terebinth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, because his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay. So on the surface, this kind of looks like the angel of the Lord shows up and just drips sarcasm by saying, Hey, you, mighty Gideon, the Lord's with you, mighty man of valor. Why, is this, why does it look like he's sarcastic? Because Gideon's threshing wheat in a wine press. Why is this crazy? Do we, not, we understand how, like, how threshing wheat and 
was done in back in the day. So for those of people that don't, the wheat harvest gets brought into this big sort of hard surface, like a threshing floor, and then they beat the out of the wheat, okay? And then they throw it up in the air, what's left over. So as they're beating it out, it, it sort of breaks up the husk and, and the chaff from the actual nice bit of grain, the wheat that you want in the middle. So it breaks it all that up, and then they grab the whole everything and just chuck it up in the air, and then the chaff and all the light sort of husky stuff is dragged away by the wind, okay? And all the heavier, smoother, actual good grain that they want to keep drops back down, okay? So they're doing that over and over. So you need to be in a nice, breezy place, usually on the top of a hill or out in an open paddock or something along those lines. That's usually where wheat is threshed. Where's Gideon? He's doing it in a wine press. What's a wine press? Well, it's a pit in the ground. Not a whole lot of airflow there, hey? So he looked, this looks ridiculous, okay? He's doing it in this pit. It's probably, you know, wine presses, so if they had terrace sort of vineyards, they might have the pit down in like a valley or something, and it's, it's a place where they'd throw all the grapes and they'd stomp all the juice out, you know, turn into wine or, or whatever else, okay? So that's why this looks a bit crazy, all right? And so Gideon, this is, this is our first meeting with Gideon. He's doing this crazy, inefficient threshing, okay? He, the shaft's probably falling back down with the wheat, all right? The, he's probably doing a terrible job. It's difficult. It's frustrating. He's humiliated. And he's doing this all because he's hiding away from these Midianites, these hordes, who then probably come and steal all his wheat so that his family's got nothing to eat or something like that, okay? So that's where we see Gideon. So the angel of the Lord shows up and, hey, hey Gideon, the Lord's with you, you mighty man. Kidding. So from my perspective, like from our perspective, when we look at this, we're like, Gideon, he doesn't look like a brave and mighty man. He's not like he's out threshing wheat on the paddock. He said, come and get me, you Midianites. He doesn't look like that, does he? He's hiding in a ditch. He's probably just a dude just trying to keep his head low, stay out of trouble so he can have some food to feed his family. Trying to limp through life under this burden of foreign occupation. So he appears to be scared of these Midianite hordes but he's getting on with life. Let's keep reading verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? This is because Gideon's heard what this prophet was going around saying. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into this hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him. Notice how the angel of the Lord is now the Lord. Okay, so it's probably like pre-incarnate Jesus. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and I bring out my present and I set it before you. And he said, I'll stay until you return. So Gideon then returns with like a decent feed. Okay, it's quite sizable when you look at the quantities that he's used. He brings it out and he sets it on this rock under the tree before the Lord. The Lord touches the rock with his staff and flames shoot up out and just consume this 
sacrifice, meal kind of thing. And then he vanishes. And then Gideon's freaking out. He's just like, whoa, no, I've seen the Lord. I'm going to die. Because that's, you know, that was what the Israelites thought. Like if they saw the Lord, they were going to die. And the Lord then speaks to him from some non-bodily form. And he says, no, come down. You're not going to die. It's okay. And then later on that night, he, says, he tells Gideon to go out and tear down the altars of Baal, the local altars of Baal and the Asherah pole, okay, beside it. And then he wants to burn that Asherah pole as a sacrifice, put your father's um, um, bullocks on there, like your oxen on there, and, burn, and sac- make a sacrifice to the Lord. Whoa, this is a big calling, hey? This is like some guy told to go and burn down his dad's church or something. Like, it's a big call. Big call. So, what does Gideon do? Verse 27, Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Okay. So here's Gideon. He's this mighty man of valor, this brave dude, tearing down the altars and the idols okay, of his family because he's too afraid to do it in the daytime. But he still did what God required of him. Okay? So he's Gideon, he's fearful, yet he's obedient, okay? which God then sees and makes him brave. God sees this as bravery. And then there's the event that Gideon's probably most famous for, you know, the, the, the skins that he puts out, where he says, Lord, if, if I'm the one to lead Israel... Let the that, let this skin that I'm putting out be wet and the ground around it dry. Next day, oh, still not too sure. All right, Lord, don't be angry with me. Can we do this again? Reversed, okay? Ground wet, skin dry. And it is, okay? So Gideon, once again, he shows that he's fearful. He's a bit uncertain. He's cautious. He's seeking the Lord. He wants his confirmation, but he's what? Still obedient. And then on into chapter 7, Gideon leads his bunch of dudes, okay, who are with him um, towards the Midianite camp. Now, this is the Midianites, you know, they're in, in, infecting the land. They're like a locust, they're like a plague. There's this massive plague proportions, a huge army full of troops and camels. You can't even really count it, they're that many. He leads them up to this army. And on his way, on, on his way there, God says to him, mate, you've got too many troops. Gideon's like, is there such a thing as too small of an army? Like, I thought the bigger the better, especially when you're, when you're fighting like a locust swarm of, of soldiers. Like, what? But then the Lord says, no, you got too many because if you win, you'll think it was you who were strong. Okay? So, the Lord says, let all the scared blokes go home. All right? If only the Soviet army had done that, eh? Only the Lord can do these great things. The, um, the scared guys, off they go. 22,000 of them. And Gideon's probably thinking, I'm scared. Can I go home too? <laughs> like, just go with them as he's looking over the last 10,000 of them. They go a little bit further. And the Lord says, you've still got too many. Take them down to this creek, all right, and get them to drink. He doesn't say who's going through. He doesn't say what type of drink, you know, what, what method of drinking or whatever. 
is acceptable. He said, just split them up how they drink. If they get down and slurp, chuck them over there. If they pick the water up and lick at it like dogs, chuck them over there. Right, 300 weirdos who drink water like dogs. We'll take you guys. Send the other 9,700 home. They go home too. So Gideon's got his 300 men. So they go down to the valley, they overlook into this valley, and here is the Midianite horde, okay? Teeming, soldiers, camels, sand on the seashore kind of stuff. Massive, massive army. I don't know if you've seen a really big crowd, but just when faces sort of become indistinguishable and every head's sort of like this little dot, and it's just, oh, man. It gets me nervous just thinking about crowds. Anyway, so Gideon's looking over. He's... He's got these 300 men, but what's, God's, what's God done here? God's set this up so that the odds are just so incredibly harsh against Gideon that, and his band of brothers that it will just look like an utter impossibility by the earth's account. Okay? Utter impossibility for them to, def- to win this battle and to accomplish the task. But God's put it that way. God's set it up that way. Let's read. More. Um, it's this is a very peculiar portion of the story. It's in verse 9 of chapter 7. And the same night, so this is when they're camping over, looking over these hordes, this massive Midianite army. And the same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down by himself, no, he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. All right, so he's Gideon, fearful of what God's told him to do. God's given him an opportunity. Hey, if you're scared, take your servant with you. Gideon's like, okay, I'll take the servant. Then they go down, have a look at this army. And, but who wouldn't be scared? Like, man, I wouldn't be going down my, by myself either. I get crushed like a flea. But as we see, this Gideon pattern emerging, okay? He's fearful, but he's obedient in that fear. Verse 12. Now, coming up, this is a little, little bit of a glimmer to Jesus in this story, okay? So it's important that we just pull this up out of the mud, this little gemstone, and brush it off and just look at it for a little bit. Verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and it turned upside down and the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, there is no other than the sword of Gideon. This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. A man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This is so bizarre. And so he's Gideon, he's snooping around like the outskirts of the enemy camp at night. And he overhears these two soldiers talking. One soldier is telling him about this really bizarre dream. Like, 
There's this boat, loaf of bread and it rolled in and it smashed our army. So crazy, isn't it? But see, this is... And, and, and then, oh, and the other crazy thing is, then there's the other guy gives the interpretation of that dream back to the dreamer. Whoa, this is just this God-orchestrated event here to just bolster Gideon's terrified little heart. His weak, fearful and uncertain heart. See, and it's, if, if you notice, it's a loaf of barley bread, okay? It's a loaf of barley bread that comes down. So why barley bread? Why not just gluten-filled, awesome wheat bread? Why not? Okay? Because barley is the poor person equivalent of wheat. All right? Barley's disgusting. I don't know if... Well, anyway, I think it is. But each to their own, I guess. It's, it's the poor person of wheat, okay? And it's probably all that the Israelites had to eat because they were flogging all the decent stuff, all the wheat, all the, all the proper grains. So here we go. This um, loaf of barley rolls in and flips the enemy camps completely upside down and they crash flat. Does this dream ring any sort of connections to you at all? A dream of something rolling in, smashing something down. I think of that dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. You know the dream of the statue with all the different, made of the different metals, symbolizing all the different world empires, and that rock just comes rolling in and smashes the feet, the whole statue crashes down. Now this loaf of barley bread, okay, on the immediate horizon, it represents Gideon, all right? But on the far horizon, it represents a greater conqueror, right? The bread of life, okay? that initially looked plain and uninviting, but nevertheless it sustained life, it would come rolling in, crashing in, destroy the forces of the enemy, okay? Defeat the powers of sin and death. Like Jesus is this conqueror. This other dream has got like this other element to it, okay? So that's our little picture of, of Jesus just coming up here and we'll, we'll, we'll pull, out, pull in more later. I find it amazing that there's all these little snippets of just, just little... Um, biblical events that are laid out in history but then pop up and we can see Jesus through them. The greater work that Jesus will accomplish later on from this point in time. Anyway, so from overhearing this, this interpretation, Gideon is just stoked, all right? He's pumped. He's ready to take on these guys. He's, he knows. He's got the confirmation that he's in this little groove where God, right where God wants him, okay? This is like a really warm blanket around his like scattered anxious nerves that are all just going around in his mind, okay? He's calm here. He's got the calm assurance. He's right in the right place where God wants him. There is no better feeling than that. When you know that you're right at that right moment in time where God wants you, there is no better feeling. And he gets this at this point in time and he just worships the Lord in the enemy camp. Crazy. So anyway, back to the, he goes back to his 300 men and he's like, right, we're going to smash these guys. We're going down. We're going to go take on this locust swarm. So who gets the feeling that this is a bit 300-esque? Okay. There's Gideon. He's like, you know, for those of you who know 300, the movie based on that battle of Thermopylae where King Leonidas, he was a Spartan king. He took 300 like arm to the teeth, tough, gritty dudes. And they held off like the swarming arm of King Xerxes' Persian Empire during the second invasion of Greece. So... It looks a bit like that until we 
look into it a little bit. 300 warriors, yeah, okay, that's the same. Fearless leader. <laughs> Fearful leader. Hmm. Warriors. Dudes that drank water like a dog. Um, armed to the teeth with a trumpet and a torch. Yeah, not really. Not really, hey. Doesn't really look like that powerful kind of army that we would expect a small one from this worldly perspective to take on a massive horde army. It looks, it doesn't look right, okay? This cannot be happening. How, how is any victory going to come from this? So anyway, Gideon and his bunch of 300 fighters, blokes with a trumpet and a torch in a jar. They're about to gather around a sleeping giant of an army that outnumbers them hundreds of soldiers to one. And they're about to blow a trumpet in their ear and turn the lights on. It's kind of like a bad prank. You know when you did like sleepovers at friends' places and there'd be one mate who'd, crack, who'd sleep, go to sleep early in the movie or whatever, and then everyone would play a really loud move, like noise and slap him on the cheek and turn the lights on. He'd be like, oh, no, I wet himself. What, just me? Oh, I had crazy friends then, hey? Anyway, um, but this is kind of, kind of what this looks like, all right? And you can imagine Gideon's men, they're standing around going, hope this works, hope this works, just looking at each other awkwardly. But here's the real bite, okay? God wants this weakest possible choice to win the battle, even an army without weapons. None of these guys have weapons. Well, what are they going to do? Belt some dude over the head with a trumpet or burn him? Like, what are they going to do? They're not even armed, all right? But the paramount factor here is the obedience to God through his weakness, through this obvious weakness, that then God's power can be on display, okay? So let's keep reading. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, and then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittar towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel, Meheloah by Tabath. And we all know where those places are. Okay. So remember the dream that Gideon overheard of that barley, that loaf of bread coming in and flipping the tent upside down. This is that flipping upside down, like utter chaos and confusion in the Midianite camp. Like, as the watch is changing, okay, so there's guys coming back off guard duty, going to bed, waking up the next shift to go on guard duty. So there's guys toing and froing through the camp. There's just guys walking, guys sleeping, guys waking up, going here, there, everywhere, okay? And then all of a sudden, 300 trumpets blast, and there is lights everywhere. Now, every Midianite soldier is probably thinking, well, you don't, who are these guys? You don't set, we're under attack. You don't set up an army with, you know, every guy with a trumpet. You might give one in 100 a trumpet. You don't set up the army with every lot, everyone with a light, like one in 10 might have a light. 
So they look around at these trumpets and lights and stuff everywhere and think there's this huge force like snuck up on them in the middle of the night. There's dudes walking around in their camp. They're like, who are you? I don't know. Stab. Like, there's so much friendly fire stabbing, okay? And so much confusion, and they just flee. They're gone. Gone. They flee the land. They're pursued. Oh, man. That's cool. That's a cool story. See, fear is just this thing that us as humans, we just have and we just deal with. It's just part of one of our emotions as humans. Like, it helps us. It's a feeling that can help us survive, actually. Like, if there is, like, like if you're fearful of a massive erupting volcano, that's totally rational, man. Like, you run as far and as fast as you can away from that thing. All right? That's fine. But other fears, they limit us and they stop us doing things. Like, you know, we have different phobias and things are different, you know. People have phobias of all different things and it just causes us to seize up and be stunted in what we're meant to be running and freely doing. It's pretty interesting, actually, that in the Bible, it tells us to fear not about 80-ish sort of times. But at the same time, the same Bible is calling us into a, 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 the, an understanding that the only thing or person to be fearful of is the Lord. Okay? But it's not in like a fear of like, this, uh, like an evil, malevolent sort of source. It's a, it's a respectful kind of reverence fear all right, of someone who loves us and that we just adore and we honor and we just respect so much. That's what the fear of the Lord is. So we're presented with two types of fear here, okay? We're presented with our natural fear that is just makes us stop and makes us just scared of things. We just don't want to do things because it's awkward for whatever reason. And then we're presented with this fear of the Lord, which is like this reverent respect of his authority and his power. Now, which one did Gideon display? Both, okay? He displayed both. But one overtook the other. All right? He was naturally fearful, you know, like shaking hands. I get that too, Rick. Like you, you know, you're up here at the front. Everyone's looking at you. Shaky hands, sweaty palms, pounding heart. You get that. We all get that. He had that natural fear, obviously, of what God was then calling him to do. But his fear of the Lord and his desire to put the Lord first overrode that fear, okay? overpowered his natural fear. And flowing from this fear, flowing from his like reverent respect of the Lord, of God's authority, it helped him be obedient to what God was asking of him. See, I was at a Foo Fighters concert um, years ago. Look at everyone look up like, oh, you went to the Foo Fighters hall? Um, it was a big day out set and, and Dave Grohl pulled a dude up out of the mosh pit to come and sing a few lines with him. And me and my friends, we'd been there pretty much most of the day and we'd worked our way through the mosh pit and we were right at the front so I could get a good view of this guy's face. And he was freaking out, okay? The look on this guy's face is just like, he was nervous, you could tell he was shaking and he's like gagging on his words because there's 80,000 you know, 80, people here that's how I knew what a big crowd looks like when you can't make it. Little tiny heads. Um, you know, and he gets up on stage and he looks out to this sea of people and he's just like, oh, just, he could hardly get the words out. But what kept him up on stage? What kept him there? What made him keep trying to sing? What made him keep, you know, 
like trying to get the words out. He was singing terrible, out of tune, like it was, it was just an absolute disaster. But what kept him there was his admiration. That's right. He wanted, he wanted Dave Grohl to look like to see him and go, hey man, great job. All right. He was, he, his was his idol. Okay. And he, he just wanted his admiration and respect so much that he just kept there. It was overriding his other fear. Okay. Of the massive crowd. So it is with us, our true feelings towards God are exposed by whether or not we obey him. And by whether what he tells us to do has precedence over what we are fearful of. See, if we truly love him, we're going to do what he wants, despite other pressing consequences, aren't we? Because John, Jesus' disciple in John's gospel, he records Jesus saying this, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Right? And John saying that to the disciples, us by extension, we are disciples. If we love Jesus, we're going to do his commandments. So it's here in this place, this place where we find Gideon, is the same place where the, the, our love of the Lord, our fear of him and our obedience to what he wants us to do, we sort of see all these three things converging and merging into this point of unity. Okay, Here, that's the story of Gideon. All right? And taking our message from Ahud a couple of weeks ago, that our weaknesses are most powerfully used by God because God loves to get in to all that weak stuff, you know, our left-handedness, our sicknesses, our illnesses, our pain, our fears. God loves to get into all these areas and use them for great things because it's not us naturally. Why else would he use 300 dudes who drank like dogs without weapons to beat, defeat such an army? Yeah. God loves to get into those weak points and make his real power blow out. I wish I could do that better. You know, like big subwoofers. You know that opening scene in Lord of the Rings? Back in the day, yeah. Jason, you're my man. Anyway, so if you get like, take some moment, let's pray. Lord, show us these moments. Show us these points in us, these pieces in our life, Lord, that are weak that we need to hand over for you. Often they're weak, Lord. We just don't, we don't want them to be on display. We're ashamed of them. Show us those weak parts of us, Lord. Show us those parts that you want to get in and use. Show us them, please, Lord. And give, and give us the, help us with this obedience thing. Help us to give them over to you and to be honest and obedient to you when you call us out into those places. So if you have like a hot and warm, uncomfortable feeling about some sort of weakness that you don't want or like that you are ashamed of or that you're scared God might be calling you into, I just want to say, just like be obedient. Just be obedient in that. Like this could, it could be the hardest thing that you've ever been called out into in your life, but just, just be obedient. And these steps of obedience just draw us out into that deeper water that we've talked about so much coming into 2019. It calls us out into the deeper water where we get deeper reliance and deeper dependence on the Lord. So we understand from the life of Gideon, we've got this, the message to remain obedient to the Lord's calling, despite fear. Yet, we talked about you know, the circle of judges and the lip where it starts to curl over and starts turning into a whirlpool. And Gideon's on this lip, 
Gideon fell off the rails later on in life. He made some golden ephod that people hoard after it. It tripped all his family up. They went into idolatry and all different sorts of things. Okay? It's not a rosy ending for the end of Gideon. But, but Gideon's not the one that we look to and we admire and we respect and we hold up as an exemplar. Like He's not. That's not who we are to look to. Our gaze needs to go through Gideon. Right, go through him, look past him into the true and better Gideon, Jesus. Okay, Because if we're to be obedient in this life, we need to set our gaze and put our stabilizing limbs out on something that cannot be affected by the fears in this world. Something greater than all of that, which is our Lord Jesus. Okay, So when you think about it, actually, the ultimate example of obedience through fear actually is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right? Jesus, fully man. Okay, and we've been reading a lot about Jesus, like he's fully God, fully man as well. Nervous, probably freaking out, racked out of his brains, okay? Like, what is going to happen to me? Sweating, sweating blood, pleading to the, pleading to the Father, like, Lord, is it, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? And as a Jewish kid growing up, you know, under, under Roman oppression, like he's, he's probably saw or heard of crucifixions. You know, that screaming agony of the, the person that was getting nailed up, the wailing and weeping of the families watching just the humiliation of that person as they're just hanging there and dying, the smells of like ripped flesh and pooled blood. He would have known what was coming his way. But, but he showed ultimate obedience in going through that. Ultimate obedience through that fear for that greater cause. Obedience to the Father's will to go through that for us. And he then defeated that massive enemy, sin and death. So that's our Lord this morning. So let's come into communion and remember that sacrifice. I'm going to pray now and then come up and just maybe just spend some time just thinking about you know, what obedience looks like to the Lord in your life and the standard that is set. Obedience to death through fear, through fear of death. Like, wow. Lord, thank you for your example in this. Thank you for the examples in history through Gideon and the ultimate example that you set for us. Help us, Lord. Help us with our weakness, with our want to go the other way. Help us to be obedient in this life following you, Lord. As we come now, we remember you. Make us truly thankful of your sacrifice for us the work that you've done for us and help us to understand that you, just the truth that you know our weak hearts, Lord, but you want to use them anyway. Help us, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. Amen.